This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love to hear your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll put them up on the air. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we bring you the incredible life story of Kelly Loth, a Colorado woman who left her job as a biochemical engineer to try to find greater meaning as a teacher. Kelly would find meeting and has had extraordinary impact. But as is often the case, many great things begin with a tragedy. We had just had our first child. When I got the call, I was not at home. I was actually at school at parent-teacher conferences running them. I was a teacher then. And I actually thought that it was my son, that something had happened, you know, that he was really sick or something had happened. I didn't even think that it could be my husband. He had a massive stroke. When I got to the hospital and realized what was going on, I knew that my life would never be the same. And, and it wasn't. He was actually uh, pronounced dead twice. <laughs> kind of thought through it a little bit that first night. I walked into the hospital and I'm 24 years old and I don't know what's going on and I'm asked to make a decision to give him the medicine that helps kind of recover brain activity and, and lessen some of the swelling in the brain and it would either help him or it would instantly kill him. And at that point I had no, no family around, just had literally been dropped off at the hospital and from that decision forward everything was different. So he spent two weeks in the ICU and then another several weeks in the hospital and had to be transitioned to a facility to learn to walk and talk again and become a, a human being again, to be honest, brush his teeth, the whole thing. And it was very traumatic to his brain. He kind of topped up maturity-wise at about an 18-year-old, and here's a man who helped design QuickBooks. I mean, like, a genius. It was all around heartbreaking. There were several times he would tell me he wished he had died, that he hadn't survived. Over the course of several months we just tried to figure out how to go forward with a brand new baby being a very young brand new teacher and then having this happen i missed seeing trey's first steps because my parents had taken him to live with them so that i could be with um, my husband full-time and help him recover and it was just a lot it was a lot of being a 24 year old i look back on it now and i think thank god i was and that sort of had this like weird ignorance about me of like work through it get through it just take each day I used to walk out of the hospital and go stand by the highway on Highway 36 and just watch traffic and just wish that I was in a car going to like a really boring normal job, like that, that was my day and that I wasn't there at the hospital trying to figure out how to re-navigate my whole life. He came home and wasn't only, not only the same person, but didn't like the same food, didn't dress the same. I think didn't even really want to be with me. Certainly didn't want to have a child. We started to see that I'm not sure where we go from here. My husband and I talked through it and it was actually mutually agreed upon to not stay together so that he could concentrate on becoming better and really get the rehab that he needed in a way that wasn't distracting and that I could move on with my life and with our son. And so I guess I'm proud to say that we're good friends. He sees our son as he can and as he wants to and cheers him on at his games. We all are together, we go do things together, so it's kind of one big, happy, dysfunctional family. <laughs> he 
you always search for why. Like, why do these things happen? Like, and I know there's a medical reason. I mean, I'm an engineer. I'm a scientist. I fully understood when the doctors were telling me what was happening. But I think for me, there's always just been this bigger sense of why did this happen and what was the journey that this led us to. And so it's always made me have a greater sense of, like, do something impactful, make a difference, because you just never know. Like, our lives were great. I mean, I would say they're perfect. But it definitely creates a, a sense of there's got to be something that you do that's important. And Kelly went on to impact education in important ways, all starting with her first job as a teacher in a Denver suburb of Adams County. It was mid-year, and so when you get a job teaching mid-year in a district, they go around and piece together a class for you, and you can imagine being the other teachers, you don't give up your best and brightest students. So I took on a class of about 22 students who had all been sort of dumped into my classroom. Most could not read. It was a first, second grade combination class, and my classroom was physically on the stage, so it wasn't an actual classroom. And I had no idea what I was doing. Here I come out of the engineering world, I'm looking at them all like, what do you mean you can't read? Like, come on, let's go. And so we did eventually teach them to read and do some amazing math, but everything I did and taught them was through the lens of science. Went around the school asking for like, do you guys have any cool science equipment? Finally, one teacher said to me, oh, I think there's a closet full of some junk that we stuffed in the back. You're welcome to go at it. And I went in there and there was just all these amazing kits and junk literally in there. And so I pulled it all out and I looked at what I was supposed to be teaching to first and second graders. And I just started building units around it. And then we did all of our reading, writing, and math through that lens. I don't think it was a super popular idea at the time. It was a kind of a model then of follow the curriculum, do what you're told, read out the book, don't steer away from that really. I did tell you a funny story. So the first week I was there, I sat in the teacher's lounge, right, which is like the sacred ground. And I sat down at a table in just a very much a very ugly folding chair. It was a really disgusting lounge. And two women walked in and said, you're, you're in our seats. And I thought, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize there was like seating in the lounge. And they said, yeah, this is where we sit every day and have lunch. And so I, I got up and I moved and I apologized. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? It was just so interesting. I had teacher after teacher stop by. One day, our kids put on a play. My kids put on a play to explain a science phenomenon that we were working on. We were talking about matter, the very first and second grade level. So I was like, let's write a play for it. And you guys put on a play, we'll invite your parents in. And I had people coming over like, we don't do that. I don't know what you're doing. What, you know, you're, you're wasting time. And I think they didn't want to be forced to do what I was doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't, they didn't want someone else to see this engagement and say, oh, why, why are we not doing some of this? Like, you all do this, you know, because it's required a lot of effort and something different. And I think they were a little fearful of me, to be honest, and didn't know what to do. And to be honest, I didn't care. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, I didn't want to lose my job, but at the same time, I thought, you aren't showing me a different way that's getting you better results. So I have kids engaged. I have kids who can't come to school for lots of reasons, coming to school because what we're doing is important to them. And for me, that was a win at the time. And you're listening to Kelly Loth, the CEO of MindSpark Learning, founder of the first K-8 STEM school in the country. And when we continue, more of Kelly Loth's remarkable story. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the story of Kelly Loth, the Colorado engineer who changed careers to become a teacher. New to the profession, Kelly created some innovative teaching methods that were unwelcomed by her coworkers, but showed great success. Let's get back to Joey with the rest of the story. After feeling like the black sheep, digging through the school closets for science kits, and creating plays about science, Kelly went on to become the science coordinator in her school district. We started to see that science like wasn't important. It was all focused on math and literacy. You know, teachers weren't engaged, students weren't engaged. And so Kelly thought, what if we created a school where students could actually be engaged? Where the classroom could look like the real world? Where businesses could share with students their actual problems that they themselves haven't even figured out yet? A school where students go on problem-solving adventures to learn pretty much everything, like literacy and STEM, subjects of science, technology, engineering, and math. A school where students are given the tools to create their own futures through a philosophy of teaching called problem-based learning. We started asking schools that were identifying with STEM at the time because it had just become like that new thing that was getting a lot of traction at the federal level. If we were to build a STEM school, how would you tell us to do that? And they were saying, you have to start young. They said, we want to be relevant to workforce, but we're remeeting so much at this level, there's no pipeline for us. Like kids are coming to us not ready to do all the things that we want them to do. And we were like, awesome. So we went back and we built out an entire school model of a K-8 STEM school and how we would start teaching career literacy and this identity of work very, very early at five years old. We had a superintendent at the time that we pitched the idea to, and he said, absolutely not. We don't have schools of choice around here. Don't need them, not interested, don't have the resources. Like, not happening. I mean, it was completely shut down. Perfect storm happened. A new superintendent came in. I think he was literally on the job two weeks, and we literally pounced on him and said, we have this idea. Just want to run it by you. Like, we were shut down before, not sure if you're going to like it. At that time, too, was also a perfect storm where a ton of charter schools were trying to move into the district, and it's not a a charter-friendly district at the time. And so his philosophy was competition, while it's healthy, we shouldn't need the charter schools. We should be able to serve our kids as well. And if we're not, then why are we not doing that? And so he said, I like it. I like the idea that it's our kids, we're serving our kids well, and we're giving some choice, and we're giving some competition to the market, but we're doing it ourselves. It was in a time when the district was cutting $22 million out of the budget, and he found the courage and took the risk to say yes to us. So we got put in the crappiest building in the district. It was actually condemned. Kind of cobbled a budget together from a whole bunch of different pots of money in the district and said, basically, you've got three months to open the doors, be successful, or we'll close you down, but good luck. (laughs) And so the three of us took it on head on. We set out a brain trust invite for industry to come to the table so that we could build a model relevant to them and really get their ideas and see what they were working on that was authentic that we could bring into the classroom. And we put out a call for about 400, 500 people and five people showed up. And we asked them for all these brilliant ideas about what problems are you working on? If you were to intersect with education, what would you want that to look like? And it was brilliant. I mean, it truly was brilliant. And they they really did build the model out for us and with us. And at the end of that time, they were like, great, when can we get our hands on these kids? Because they're just going to be amazing, right? Like, we want this talent pipeline. And I said, they're gonna, we're going to start with five-year-olds. He, they said, you want to start with five-year-olds? And I, we said, yes, we're, we're going to start with five-year-olds. And they were just sort of, I think, appalled. But they didn't leave us. And still, so now it's 10 years later, the schools that we've built this model in are thriving. And we have over 460 industry partnerships that work in the school every day. 
and they don't give up their money, but they give up their time and resource and expertise, and they, they build out the model. A model for the very first K-8 STEM school in America. Our first school was wildly successful. We opened the door with 250 kids. By the end of that year, we had 483 families on a wait list to get in, and we had closed the reading gap for our Hispanic males by mid-year. So we kind of got excited and thought maybe there's something kind of to this madness that we were creating and working on. Students wrestle over these problems in collaborative teams, as young as five, and then they present their viable solutions and ideas to a panel of industry experts who've kind of worked along the way with them and end up going in two different directions usually, which is if it's a viable product or service, the students launch their own companies, and then or they do something significant in the community. So we've had several students start nonprofits. One of the first years, we um, had some second graders who were working on the problem around the pine beetle kill going on in Colorado. Several years ago, um, we had an infestation of uh, beetles that were actually traveling tree to tree in our pine forest and just killing them. So, and in wiping out literally massive acres of trees. And some scientists think it's part of kind of a natural cycle that happens and others, it's definitely devastating and leading to a lot of the wildfires then because you have all this dead wood. So it's part of a whole bigger kind of ecological problem. But we had a group of second graders who'd come up with these really simple but pretty brilliant ideas around how to combat the pine beetle from spreading and actually had some really cool and powerful ideas about killing off the larvae before it was able to even become a full adult pine beetle and spread. And it was very simple. I mean, it was like something you'd know that a second grader would develop. And we as educators and working with these students, you know, we didn't know much about it. We just knew what the experts had said. And so I remember telling the students like, yeah, I think, I think you should definitely pitch this idea. And I remember the teacher and I had been talking like, wow, that's such a simple idea. Hopefully the industry experts will like it. Like, not sure it's well developed. And the kids pitched and it was kind of two groups that had very similar ideas. And actually the companies came back, the industry panel came back four times to talk with students about this idea and became apparent very soon that they wanted their idea. They were gonna market it, that they actually thought there was some merit to it. And so we quickly developed a process for some of the companies we worked with to sign NDAs so that they, and to sign some IP rights so that they wouldn't go around stealing student ideas, but actually mentor and help students to develop their ideas. And students got patents out of that project. You're in second grade and you have a brilliant idea and have a patent. So the companies actually ran with their idea, but the students uh, actually kind of quote unquote sold it to them. So, <laughs> I mean, just crazy, right? It's just so cool. And these aren't her only students with real business stuff going on. Now we're up to six student-run LLCs, fully registered, the youngest in second grade. And then we have about 16 student patents pending in our pipeline. It's always funny, everyone always says, well, what do you do to get prepared for all the state testing and all the high-stakes testing? And I say, we don't do anything. We don't celebrate the tests. We don't have pajama day for the test. We don't dye our hair, wear crazy socks. It's another day and actually most of my STEM students are so relieved to just be like not presenting and not doing something major that day. They're like, it's testing day. Yeah, you know, and they'll actually tell you, it's kind of boring, take a test, but it's not a big deal to them. And they don't have test anxiety because they're doing this every day. They're working on all these things that matter to them in their community. And so they're applying all these skills at such a high rate in such an authentic way. They're vetting multiple texts. They're having to find the important information out of that text. They're doing these skills all the time this is just a different housing mechanism. They also every day get up and say to a group of adults, I want you to care about the idea that I have. And they have to look you in the eye, they have to shake your hand, they have to express themselves. And so 
sit in front of a computer screen and take a test does not seem like a big deal to them anymore. And Kelly's work wasn't over. She was asked to bring her STEM problem-based learning model to a struggling high school in her district. So they've gone from a 69% grad rate to having around 90% grad rate. And the really amazing thing is they're underrepresented populations, their um, Hispanic students and their African-American students are out graduating their white counterpart students. Which is practically unheard of in America. I think what's happening is that it's no longer just about surviving high school and not feeling connected to your school. The students are very empowered there. And so what we've seen is students who come from pretty impacted families and are very at risk thrive because school has a purpose to that, right? It's a means to a family-sustaining wage. And they know that they're just not sitting through a class because they have to sit through a class, but they know that they have to come and they're working side by side with somebody from industry. They have to show up for that mentorship. It's gonna translate into this job or it's gonna translate into a two-year degree or eventually onto college if they wish. Like, there's just such a powerful meaning there that we've seen attendance rates go up. And we've seen discipline rates go down. And they went from, you know, having nobody wanting to be in the school to a wait list. Like, kids have internships and jobs. It's just completely changed the community. And great job to Joey, and we're telling Kelly Loth's story, a remarkable story. And I love that line, school has a purpose. What a crazy idea. Because, well, when what we're studying is tied to our purpose, well, then math, the sciences, it all becomes interesting. Well, because there's a connection between what they're studying and what they want to do with their lives. It's an applied learning situation. You know, my dad spent a lifetime in public education trying to get this done. It was great frustration. He couldn't. He was a superintendent of schools. But very strong teachers' unions didn't really care for innovation in the state of New Jersey. And Kelly has launched two more STEM schools in her district and has 13 sister schools across the country. Kelly now runs a nonprofit called MindSpark Learning, which helps bring these same transformative experiences into struggling schools across the country. And if your school needs help, you can reach out to Kelly at mymindsparklearning.org. That's mymindsparklearning.org. Kelly Loth's story, and a great innovation and education story, here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and this story comes to us from Michael T. Powers, the owner of a video production company, a youth pastor, and the author of the book Heart Touchers, life-changing stories of faith, love, and laughter, which includes the following story. Every year, Michael's hired by an eighth-grade class to capture their trip to Washington, D.C., and in the year 2000, their last stop was at the Marine Corps War Memorial, which is the largest bronze statue in the world and depicts one of the most famous photographs in history. It's of the five Marines and one Navy corpsman 
who raised the American flag at the top of Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima, Japan, during World War II. And here's Michael with what happened next. So over 100 students and a chaperones piled off the buses and headed towards the memorial. I noticed a solitary figure at the base of the statue, and, and as I got closer, he looked at me and he asked, So what's your name, and where are you guys from? I told him my name was Michael Powers and that we were from Clinton, Wisconsin. Hey, I am a cheesehead too. Come, gather around, cheeseheads, and I will tell you a story. James Bradley just happened to be in Washington, D.C. to speak at the memorial the following day. He was there that night because he wanted to say goodnight to his dad, who had previously passed away and whose image is part of the statue. He was just about to leave when he saw the buses pull up. I videotaped him as he spoke to us, and I received his permission to share what he said from my videotape. See, it's one thing to tour the incredible monuments filled with history in Washington, D.C., but it's quite another to get the kind of insight that we received that night. When we had all gathered around, he reverently began to speak. Here are his words from that night. My name is James Bradley, and I'm from Anago, Wisconsin. My dad is on that statue, and I just wrote a book called Flags of Our Fathers, which is number five on the New York Times bestseller list. It's the story of the six boys that you see behind me. Six boys raised that flag. The first guy putting the pole in the ground, his name is Harlan Block. See, Harlan was an all-state football player. and He enlisted in the Marine Corps with all the senior members of his football team. They were off to play another type of game, a game called war. But it didn't turn out to be a game. Harlan, at the age of 21, died with his intestines in his hands. I don't say that to gross you out. I say that because there are people who stand in front of this statue and they talk about the glory of war. You guys need to know that most of the boys in Iwo Jima were 17, 18, and 19 years old. He pointed to the statue. You see this next guy? That's Rene Gagnon from New Hampshire. If you took his helmet off at the moment this photo was taken and you looked in the webbing of that helmet, you would find a photograph. A photograph of his girlfriend. He put it there for protection because he was scared. He was 18 years old. Boys won the Battle of Iwo Jima. Boys, not old men. The next guy here, the third guy in this tableau was Sergeant Mike Strank. Mike is my hero. In fact, he was the hero of all these guys. They called him the old man because he was so old. He was already 24. When Mike would motivate his boys in training camp, he didn't say, let's go kill the enemy or let's go die for our country. He knew he was talking to boys. Instead, he would say, you guys do what I say, and I will get you home to your mothers. The last guy on this side of the statue is Ira Hayes, a Pima Indian from Arizona. Ira Hayes walked off of Iwo Jima. He went into the White House with my dad. President Truman told him, Son, you're a hero. He told reporters later, How can I feel like a hero when 250 of my buddies hit the island with me and only 27 of us walked off alive. 
So think about this. You, you take your class at school, maybe 250 of you, spending a year together, having fun, doing everything together. And then all 250 of you hit the beach, but only 27 of your classmates walk off alive. That was Ira Hayes. He had images of horror in his mind. Ira Hayes died dead drunk, face down at the age of 32, 10 years after this picture was taken. The next guy, as we go around the statue, is Franklin Sowsley from Hilltop, Kentucky, a fun-loving hillbilly boy. His best friend, who's now 70 years old, he told me, yeah, you know, we took two cows up on the porch of the Hilltop General Store, and then we strung wire across the stairs so that those cows couldn't get down. And then we fed them Epsom salts. Man, those cows, they crapped all night. Yeah, he was a fun-loving hillbilly boy. But Franklin died on Iwo Jima at the age of 19. And when the telegram came to tell his mother that he was dead, it went to the Hilltop General Store. And a barefoot boy ran that telegram up to his mother's farm. And the neighbors, they could hear her scream all night and into that next morning. And the neighbors lived a quarter of a mile away. The next guy, as we continue to go around the statue, is my dad, John Bradley from Anago, Wisconsin, where I was raised. My dad lived until 1994, but he would never give interviews. When Walter Cronkite's producers or the New York Times would call, we were trained as little kids to say, No, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. My dad's not here. He's in uh, Canada fishing. No, uh, no, there's no phone there, sir. No, no, we, we don't know when he's coming back. My dad never fished or even went to Canada. Usually he was sitting right there at the table eating his Campbell's soup. But we, we had to tell the press that he was out fishing. He didn't want to talk to the press. You see, my dad didn't see himself as a hero. Everyone thinks these guys are heroes because they're in a photo and a monument. My dad knew better. He was a medic. John Bradley from Wisconsin was a caregiver. In Iwo Jima, he probably held over 200 boys as they died. And when boys died in Iwo Jima, they writhed and they screamed in pain. When I was a little boy, my third grade teacher told me that my dad was a hero. When I went home and told my dad that, he looked at me and he said, I want you always to remember that the heroes of Iwo Jima are the guys who did not come back. Did not come back. So that's the story about six nice young boys. Three died on Iwo Jima and three came back as national heroes. Overall, 7,000 boys died on Iwo Jima in the worst battle in the history of the Marine Corps. My voice is giving out and so I will end here. Thank you all for your time. We were stunned. Suddenly, the monument wasn't just a big old piece of metal with a flag sticking out of the top. It came to life before our eyes with the heartfelt words of a son who did indeed have a father who was a hero. Maybe not a hero in his own eyes, but a hero nonetheless. And thank you for that reading, Michael. And Boy, the class, what a lucky class to bump into James Bradley and hear that story. Bringing life to his statue, real life. James Bradley's book, Flags of Our Fathers, well, it became a fantastic hit for Clint Eastwood. 
by the same name, of course. Imagine those numbers. 250 boys hit the beaches. 27 survive. It's unimaginable. And we don't just bring you these stories on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. They come to you year-round because you need to hear them. We all need to hear them. This is our American stories. Michael Powers' story. James Bradley's story and his father's. American stories. And now we bring you the story of an American artist whose fuzzy afro and calming voice grace TV sets not only from coast to coast, but around the world from Muncie, Indiana. Here's Jesse Edwards with our look into the life of Bob Ross. If you mention the name Bob Ross around a baby boomer, they're likely to have fond memories growing up listening to his soothing voice while watching his educational painting show. Despite the fact that he died over 20 years ago, if you mention Bob Ross to a teenager, they're likely to be just as knowledgeable. Then there's everybody else in between who doesn't know Bob Ross because you're either not old enough to remember him the first time around or young enough to know about his recent viral comeback. Hello, I'm Bob Ross, and I'd like to welcome you to the 21st Joy of Painting series. If this is your first time with us, let me extend a personal invitation for you to drag out your little paint brushes and some paints and, and paint along with us each show. And who hasn't sat around on a lazy weekend afternoon and watched the great Bob Ross do his thing on public television? Or just, just drag up the old easy chair and enjoy a relaxing half hour as we play some of nature's masterpieces on canvas. The mild-mannered, soft-spoken painter had a special ability to put his viewers into a trance-like state as we watched him paint his happy little trees and his... Beautiful landscapes. Now then, <clears throat> let's decide. Maybe there's a happy tree, evergreen tree. He lives right there. Start with just touching the canvas. Use just the corner of the brush, just the corner, and begin pushing, making the bristles bend slightly downward. See there? Look at that. Isn't that a nice little tree? And he lives right here in this brush. All you have to do is sort of push him out. Bob Ross created and starred in The Joy of Painting on PBS, where he taught viewers how to paint like he did using the wet-on-wet technique. His process involved painting his entire canvas in white before he laid down the other oil paints. While some stuffy, classically trained artists would say this is cheating, it didn't matter to Bob or anyone in his audience for that matter. We'll go right up to the top of the canvas, and we'll start. We'll just do some little X's, little crisscross strokes, and we'll work all the way across the top. Now the color is continually mixing with the liquid white and it creates all those beautiful variations that we want. Let me put a little more color on the brush here. And although Ross died of lymphoma at age 52 in 1995 on the 4th of July, he's just as famous now, if not more so, 
than he was at the peak of his career. There we go. Let's start at the top and work down. And that way, our sky will get progressively lighter toward the horizon. And that's exactly what we're looking for. In a landscape, you want things to get lighter toward the horizon and darker as they can come away from the horizon. His videos have millions of views on YouTube and has over 600,000 followers on Twitch where PBS regularly marathons episodes of The Joy of Painting. That effect happens automatically. You really don't have to worry about it. It, it just happens. And that truly is the joy of painting. There. His soothing voice continues to calm people and his endless supply of inspirational quotes like, there are no mistakes, only happy accidents are more relevant than ever. And see what happens. As you paint, you'll see all kind of things happening on your canvas, and very soon you learn to use all these beautiful little things that happen. We don't, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. One of the first things people noticed about Bob Ross was his trademark afro. But it might surprise some fans to learn that his hair was naturally straight. He chose to get a perm because he thought he would save money by not having to get haircuts. Yet... Ross later regretted the lush curly locks and wanted to change his hair back to its natural state. But by that point, his company had already included Ross's iconic fro for the company logo, and there was no going back. Give him a shake. <laughs> and just beat the devil out of him. Sometimes those brushes get away and they go, soon, clean the other side of the room. That's when you find out who your friends are. Ross was born in Daytona Beach, Florida, and dropped out of his freshman year of high school to work on construction with his father. In 1961, then 18-year-old Ross enlisted in the Air Force and was put into service as a medical records technician. He eventually rose to the rank of Master Sergeant and served as the first sergeant of the U.S. Air Force Clinic at Ellison Air Force Base in Alaska. I spent half my life in the military, and there I had to, I had to live in somebody else's world all the time. And painting offered me freedom. I'd come home after all day of playing soldier and I'd paint a picture and I could paint the kind of world that I wanted. It was clean, it was sparkling, shiny, beautiful, no pollution, nobody, nobody upset. Everybody was happy in this world. That may be how I made it through 20 years of military. There we go. Because I could find freedom on this canvas. There is absolute freedom here. And I think we're all looking for freedom. His time in Alaska undoubtedly influenced his later work. It was in Alaska where he saw snow and mountains for the first time, both of which were heavily featured in his paintings. If you've never been to Alaska, you're to go see it. It's almost unreal. I was born and raised in Florida. And was, <laughs> I was almost 20 years old before I ever saw snow. And my favorite uncle, Uncle Sam, he sent me up there in January. Thought that would be funny. <laughs> it was funny. I, uh, I got off the plane. The first thing I did was stepped on the ice and fell on my bottom because I didn't know how to walk on ice. In Alaska, they have ice fog. And ice fog occurs normally when it's about 30 below or colder. And it covers everything, everything with frost. It is so beautiful. Trees look like they're in full foliage. So beautiful, and the light plays through it, and these, all these little ice-covered, frosty things, they act like prisms, and they break up the light, and you see all colors in the trees. In the dead of winter, you can see just, oh, you have to go see it. I can't, can't.
can't explain it all to you. So pretty. It's hard to believe that anyone could watch this maestro at his easel and not be tempted to pick up a paintbrush. But the truth is, most of Ross's audience didn't even paint. So why do people watch? Some people just tune in for Ross's welcoming persona and positive musings about life. Others tuned in because it helped lull them to sleep. A fact that Ross was well aware of. He didn't mind. That's the name of the game. It's enjoying. You really already enjoy what you do in life. If you do, then you'll do a good job. And I certainly enjoy what I'm doing. I spend half my life doing somebody else's thing. Painting should make you happy. It does nothing else. It should make you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, you're doing the wrong thing. Because it's fun. And if you can do things all of your life that make you happy, needless to say, you're going to be a happy person. And you know, when, when you buy your first tube of paint, you get an artist's license. And that license says you can do anything that makes you happy. He tirelessly churned out three copies of every painting that appeared on The Joy of Painting. He kept the first painting off screen and used it as a reference as he worked on the copy that appeared on the show. The final painting was completed after the episode was shot. A photographer would take pictures of these third final copies and the images would appear in Ross's how-to books. I want to get you to try being creative on canvas, just to take your time and, and sit down and have nothing in mind when you start. Just have a good feeling and be happy and, and in love with life and your world and, and sit down and begin playing. And if you feel good about yourself and the world, it'll show in your painting and all these little things will happen. Bob Ross generously filmed 31 seasons of The Joy of Painting, but PBS didn't pay the artistic genius for a single episode. Instead, Ross used the show to market his brand. He made most of his money from his company, Bob Ross Inc., selling art supplies and instructional guides. The company also offered painting classes taught by artists trained in Ross's singular methods. If you happen to get some of it down in here, who cares? We'll end up turning that into reflections. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. Just... Don't worry about it. Learn how to use what happens. In addition to being the sleep-inducing master that had the same effect on the brain as Valium, Ross was an avid animal lover. Peapod the squirrel could be found chilling in Ross's shirt pocket as he painted, and sometimes Ross would take a break from painting and bottle feed the squirrel for his audience. And this is how hard it is to get a little squirrel to eat. That's all there is to it. Aren't they the most precious little characters you've ever seen? This is surreal television. Yeah. You could feed them ten times a day, and they'll always be just about this hungry. Hey, you know, I have to go to work. Yeah, I have to go to work. Okay? All right. I'm going to set him right over here and let him finish lunch. And since he created those three paintings for each episode of The Joy of Painting, he ended up with thousands of works over the course of his life. Somewhere around 30,000 paintings. And he was practically drowning in fan letters. His popularity and ambient-like side effects on viewers caused them to send him up to 200 letters every day. And on several occasions, when a regular fan would stop writing in, Bob Ross would actually call that fan just to see if they were okay. So what happened to all those masterpieces that Bob Ross painstakingly created? He donated them all to public television stations across the country so they could auction them off and keep the money. For Our American Stories, 
I'm Jesse Edwards. Hey, now we can wash the old brush. And if you've painted with me before, you know this is the fun part of this whole technique. We wash our brushes with odorless thinner, shake them off, <laughs> and just beat the devil out of them. And that's where you take all your hostilities and frustrations. And it's a lot of fun. <laughs> there we go. Just have to splash the cameraman one time so he, he doesn't feel neglected. This is Our American Stories. By the way, nothing makes me happier than seeing my wife and my little girl, 13 years old, in front of the smart TV, painting together to whom? To old Bob Ross videos. Bob Ross's story here on Our American Stories. Great job, as always, by Jesse. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. For more than 150 years, the story of a common man from the Smoky Mountains has captured our imaginations and inspired us to celebrate his image in song, story, and cinema. This is the story of one of America's best-known and most recognized folk heroes. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, to tell us the real story of Davy Crockett. One of the truly iconic figures of the American frontier is David Crockett. He was a legend in his own lifetime. Now, he certainly had tales spun about him that were hyperbolic or entirely fictional. But that was only because his real-life rise from backwoodsman to congressman and his extraordinary adventures were heroic and quintessentially American. He stood as a symbol of the new American, the man of the West and the future of the new Republic. He lived at the dawn of the age called Manifest Destiny, the time of an expanding America that is moving West. Crockett is born just 10 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence in a log cabin in Greene County, Tennessee on August 17, 1786. Davy Crockett is a third generation frontiersman and becomes the fifth of John and Rebecca Crockett's nine children. Davy's father, John, is one of the famous over-mountain men who fights in the pivotal American victory at the Battle of Kings Mountain in 1780. But while he is away fighting during the American Revolution, John's parents are slaughtered by Cherokee, who ally themselves with the British to take advantage of the war to raid and pillage. One of John's brothers is badly wounded in the attack and left for dead. And another is taken captive by the Cherokee and made a slave for 17 years. Now, born into this rugged, patriotic environment of pioneering mountain folk, Davy learns marksmanship at a young age, both for hunting and for protection against marauding Indians. Here's Crockett biographer Buddy Levy. Crockett came from a tradition of woodsmen, and he would have learned from his father and his uncles how to hunt. He learned how to track. He learned how to identify sign, scat, broken twigs. He also learned rough and tumble fighting from his older brothers. 
Here's historians Stephen Harden and David Eisenbach. Crockett's a jokester. He's remarkably funny. And he's affable. People like him. Being about six or seven by the creek, running into another bar. Well, Tennessee at the time was still the American frontier. You got wild animals, you got fights, and it was in this world where there's no kind of solid established law that David Crockett, you know, begins the process of becoming the myth. By the time Davy is 12, his father bounds him out to a perfect stranger to travel 400 miles on foot in a cattle drive to the eastern seaboard with no arrangements for his eventual return home. Three months of intensive labor pass before Davy travels alone in snow and on foot back to his mountain home where his family runs a tavern. But Davy is in for a surprise. His parents decide he will benefit from formal schooling. He isn't thrilled with confinement in a classroom, but his father is paying for it. So Davy accepts the inevitable. I went four days and had just begun to learn my letters a little when I had an unfortunate falling out with a boy much larger and older than myself, Davy Crockett. Davy begins playing hooky from school, but after a week, the schoolmaster contacts John Crockett. Davy now thinks he'll be whipped by both the schoolmaster and his own father. My father told me he would whip me if I didn't start immediately to the school. Finding me rather too slow about starting, he gathered about a two-year-old hickory stick and broke after me. I put out with all my might, and soon we were both up to our top speed. But mind me, not on the schoolhouse road, for I was trying to get as far t'other way as possible. Davy Crockett, 1834. Davy doesn't stop running, and is soon on another cattle drive to the eastern seaboard. For the next two years, he has more adventures than most people have in a lifetime. Davy returns home just shy of his 15th birthday. Here's Crockett historians Gary Foreman and Paul Hutton. David has well reached the age of puberty, and his growth is enormous. He has grown several inches. He's changed his, his uh, features, and he is now a young man. He's no longer the little boy that ran away from home. When Davy got back to the tavern, it was nighttime, and the evening meal was being served to the herders and teamsters. He moved unannounced into the tavern and sat down amidst the other men. I had been gone so long and had grown so much that the family did not at first know me. And another, and perhaps a stronger reason was, they had no thought or expectation of me, for they had all long given me up for finally lost. Davy Crockett. So he got inside the tavern, sat amongst the other travelers at the same table with the family. Finally, one of his sisters looked at him, recognized his features, and discovered she has just found her long-lost brother, David. For dear life is a constant struggle, and the family farm bankrupts the Crockett's. In order to pay his debts, Davy's father is forced to make a difficult decision. Well, here's my boy. His name is David. Shake his hand, boy. Here's criminology professor Arnett Gaston and Stephen Harden. Davy Crockett becomes what is known as a bound boy. 
It's really a form of indentured service to pay off a debt. It was slightly above being a slave. This had a significant impact on Karagat. We shouldn't, as modern people, judge John Crockett too harshly. The role of children in the early 19th century was vastly different than it is now. Indeed, and when we come back, more of the remarkable life of David Crockett here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we last left off with Davy Crockett paying off his father's debts by becoming an indentured servant. Let's pick up from there. After a year of grueling work, paying off his father's debts to Abraham Wilson and John Kennedy, Davy does something for himself. He understands he needs at least the rudiments of an education, and coincidentally, Kennedy's son runs a school. Davy strikes a deal. He works for the son two days a week in return for four days a week of schooling for six months. That's the only education uh, Crockett ever had. But in that time, he says, I learned how to read, I learned how to write, and I learned how to cipher. With just six months of formal schooling, young Crockett's real education comes from the frontier itself. It's time for you to become a man. It's a rite of passage, a tool men use to provide and protect, a symbol of independence and freedom, one Crockett grows to cherish. His skill with his rifle becomes his trademark. Crockett begins entering shooting matches and impresses all those present with his marksmanship. At 17, he and his flintlock long rifle, he names Old Betsy, often outshoot all the men, winning a steer or a hog as grand prize. He also begins hunting professionally, bringing game, especially bear and deer, to local towns and selling them for their hides and meat. But Crockett is not only driven by profit, he is also a man of charity. Here's Crockett's biographer, William Groneman. He was intensely loyal. When he was out hunting, he would always share the meat of his hunts with neighbors or people in need. His reputation begins to grow but evidently not enough to win himself a girl. Now Davy tried to make his own way. And he was consumed, as young men often are, with thoughts of finding a wife. He courted a young lady named Margaret Elder and took out a marriage license. But she jilted him at the altar and broke his heart. Then at a dance in 1806, he meets the beautiful Mary Polly Finley. He courts her for several months and they fall in love. Polly's mother is initially impressed by the young man, but soon is trying to dissuade her daughter from marrying him. This David Crockett is recklessly adventurous. Polly deserves 
a settled man with property. It becomes a battle between Crockett and Mrs. Finley. Finally, Davy simply rides up to the Finley house with a wedding party consisting of relatives, friends, and a minister in tow and says he has come for Polly. William Finley convinces his wife to step outside and talk with Crockett. She surprises everyone by apologizing to her daughter's suitor for the way she has treated him and invites the wedding party into the Finley home. The two are married. Davy is turning 20 and Polly is 18. Crockett feels blessed. As he puts it, he has his own horse and his own rifle and now his own wife. Says Crockett, I needed nothing more in the whole world. Crockett rents property near the Finleys and goes to work establishing a farm. Children come quickly. A son in 1807, another son in 1809, and a daughter in 1812. By the time his daughter is born, the family has moved farther west twice, and Crockett becomes a landowner rather than a renter. Here's Crockett from his 1834 autobiography. I found that farming wasn't what it was cracked up to be. It was therefore more necessary that I should hunt to get along. David is not only esteemed among the other hunters of the region, he's putting money in his pocket and food on the table. In 1812, war with Britain erupts again, and the Trans-Appalachian country is in the thick of it, not fighting British troops, but fighting their Indian allies. The Creeks are especially troublesome. The majority of them support the British and become known as the Red Sticks. A minority, the White Sticks, support the Americans. Receiving arms, trading goods, and occasionally military advisors from the British, the Red Stick Creeks begin raiding outlying American settlements. The Creek attack that caused Crockett and other Tennessee boys to volunteer for service occurs on August 30th, 1813 at Fort Mims, about 40 miles north of today's Mobile, Alabama. So-called fort was not much more than a palisade of logs around the homestead of Samuel Mims. With the Red Stick Creeks on the warpath, American settlers and peaceful Indians crowd into the fort for protection. By late August, the number of people inside the fort reaches 500, militiamen accounting for about half. At noon, on the 30th of August, upwards of a thousand Creek warriors assault the fort and finally set it ablaze, where everyone inside is forced to flee into the open. The Creeks grab small children by the ankles and swinging them through the air, dash out their brains on logs. Men, women, and children are scalped and dismembered. Pregnant women have their bellies split open and their fetuses ripped out, said one witness. The fearful shrieks of women and children put to death in ways as horrible as Indian barbarity could invent could be heard a half mile off. About three dozen Americans escape, some mortally wounded. Their descriptions of what the Creeks have done reverberate across the frontier. Remember Fort Mims becomes a rallying cry. Tennessee legislature authorizes the raising of an army of militiamen. Andrew Jackson is named the army's commander. 
At the time, Jackson is recovering from a severe wound suffered in a duel. Though he is too weak to get up from his bed, he accepts the appointment, saying he'll have an army on the march in nine days. He immediately issues a call for Tennesseans to volunteer for duty. Although Polly cries and begs David to stay home, he is one of the first to answer Jackson's call. Here's Crockett from his autobiography and Stephen Harden. If every man waited for his wife to be willing for him to go to war, we'd all be killed in our homes. These are the people who murdered his grandparents. These are the people who forced Crockett to leave a loving wife and family. Now we have David Crockett, the, the soldier, for the first time in his life. When Crockett joined the militia, he was perfect to chase rogue creeks and got to observe how they move through landscape. It was something that he, in fact, emulated. As the army moves southward, Crockett is put in command of a small party of men and is sent out on a scouting mission to find the Creek Indians. Among the volunteers, Davy is very popular. He is known to be honest. One man's account called David the merriest of the merry, keeping the camp alive with his jokes and stories. During the harsh winter, David spends his own money to buy blankets for the soldiers. In just two weeks, Crockett finds them, penetrating deep into Creek country. This gives Jackson all the information he needs to attack. Split the men into two columns. We'll arrive here before the sun arises. Cross the river at the low point here and here. Yes, sir. In the early morning hours on November 3, 1813, Crockett and 900 other Tennessee militia, under the immediate command of John Coffey, race ahead and surround the Creek village of Tallaloosahatchee. There are dozens of cabins there, with more than 200 well-armed Creek warriors in them. Coffey has his volunteers encircle the village, and then sends a portion of his force in a faint at the center cabins. The trap works, and the Red Stick Creek warriors are all killed, while 84 women and children are taken prisoner. One of the children, a 10-month-old boy orphaned by the fight, is about to be killed by squaws when the troops intervene. He is carried to Andrew Jackson, who takes him into his tent and coaxes him to drink a mixture of brown sugar and water. The boy becomes Andrew Jackson, Jr. A week later, at Talladega, Crockett is in even a bigger battle when a thousand Creek warriors come rushing out of the woods. The warriors came yelling on and continued till they were within shot of us, and we fired and killed a considerable number of them. They broke and ran across our line where they were fired on, and so we kept them running under heavy fire until we had killed upwards of 400 of them. Davy Crockett. And when we come back, we continue the story of Davy Crockett here on Our American Stories.
And when we last left off with Davy Crockett and the Tennessee militia battling against the British-backed Red Stick Creek Warriors, who was in the War of 1812, let's continue with this story. The War of 1812 is over in March of 1815, after a treaty is signed recognizing a military stalemate. Crockett returns to his family and home in the backwoods of Tennessee, but his bliss is short-lived. No sooner had he returned home than Polly died. She had been fine after the birth of their third child, Margaret, but she soon took ill and passed on rapidly. Davy was devastated. Death entered my humble cottage and tore from my children an affectionate and good mother and took from me a tender and loving wife. Crockett forges on as a widower and a year later marries Elizabeth Patton, a widow with two small children of her own. She lost her husband in the Creek War. Crockett will father three children with her. He moves west again in 1817 to Lawrence County, Tennessee. And at the same time, he began his political career. First as magistrate, later as colonel of the local militia regiment, thus the title Colonel Crockett. And soon he began to think about running for the state legislature. Crockett's reputation as a frontiersman and soldier make him a standout candidate. He becomes the voice of laborers, tradesmen, pioneers, and farmers, those building America into the powerhouse it's becoming. His campaign style is simple, one that involves whiskey drinking and laughable storytelling. Yeah. It's hot as blazes out here. I bet you all are thirsty. We need to wet our whistle. Here's historian David Eisenbach. I hope I get your vote. You got my vote, sir. Yes, sir. Good. David Crockett was a politician. The frontiersman was part of his image-making campaign in order to get elected uh, to a population that did not want to hear from uh, the old-time politicians. When Crockett's elected to the United States Congress, he arrives in Washington and still takes the floor of the House pretty much dressed in his buckskins. In 1821, he's elected to the Tennessee General Assembly and re-elected in 1823. He's elected in a landslide to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1826 and re-elected in 1828. David Crockett looms huge in the notion of what the American frontier was. He became a symbol of possibility, of hope, that the common man could actually rise to great heights. A man with six months education ends up in the halls of Congress. It's a uniquely American story. Andrew Jackson becomes president in 1829. And the year after, he signs the Indian Removal Act, which Crockett, to Jackson's dismay, opposes. With Crockett running for re-election, Jackson backs his opponent, William Fitzgerald, who immediately begins running a smear campaign against Crockett's character. At a campaign stop in northwest Tennessee, Crockett confronts Fitzgerald. 
Forget Davy Crockett. I will give you the real voice of Tennessee and Washington. When Crockett and Fitzgerald arrived for one of their co-stump speeches, Crockett stood up and strode toward the stage and said, you know, if you continue with these casting aspersions, I'm going to give you a country caning. Fitzgerald leveled a pistol at Crockett's chest and said, take one more step and it'll be your last. I suggest you leave. So in addition to his moral flaws, it would appear that Mr. Crockett is not quite as tough as he claims. The event with William Fitzgerald and the pistol was devastating to Crockett. He had run part of his campaign on his courage, and here he was publicly slinking away in front of someone. It was kind of an assault to his manhood. After a brutal campaign, Crockett loses a stunning upset in his re-election bid in 1830. When Crockett lost his bid for Congress, he sort of slunk home with his tail between his legs. He was now broke, arriving to find out that his, his wife had also left him and he was living alone. It was a very low, low point in his life. That is until a play opens on April 25th, 1831 in New York City. One of the things that revitalized Crockett in his career was the creation of this play called The Lion of the West. which was clearly uh, a depiction of Crockett. At the beginning, Crockett was sort of offended by this. He felt like he was being made fun of, but as it turned out, the play actually made him an international celebrity. When Crockett loses his election bid for a fourth term in 1834, he starts thinking about moving to the Mexican-held territory of Texas. Pioneers looking for cheap land stream across modern-day Alabama, Mississippi, and Arkansas into a new frontier full of opportunity. By 1836, 30,000 Americans have moved to Texas. Davy Crockett is one of them. By the time the 49-year-old Crockett reaches Memphis, some 30 like-minded friends have joined him. The night before they cross the Mississippi, a celebration is held in his honor. Bar hopping finally takes the revelers to Neil McCool's. They hoist a whiskey-filled Crockett up on a counter. He stands up, surveys the crowd, and says, You may all go to hell. I'm going to Texas. Here's historian Donald Frazier. The Texians were essentially the Anglo settlers in Mexican Texas. They'd started coming in in the last days of the Spanish regime and the first days of the new Mexican Republic. These guys were coming to Texas in order to make Texas into a new America. Like the United States, Mexico is a new country. It has recently won independence from Spain. One of the heroes of Mexico's war against Spain is General Santa Ana, 
he is now elected the Mexican president. Bit by bit, the ruthless Santa Ana, who promotes himself as the Napoleon of the West, seizes more power. He raises taxes, takes away freedoms. Now the angry Texians are calling for revolution. They want independence from Mexico. In response, Santa Ana sends 500 troops to confiscate weapons from the Americans. When the Texans refuse to surrender their guns, Santa Ana makes plans to retaliate. What began as a fresh start in Texas is now a call to arms. Sam, I'd be happy and honored to fight for the future of the Republic of Texas. Commander of the Texian Army, General Sam Houston, dispatches Crockett and his companions to a garrison where the Texian soldiers recently expelled Mexican troops, seizing control of the former Spanish mission, now a military fortress called the Alamo, located in San Antonio. They arrive at the Alamo on February 8, 1836. And when we come back, we continue the story of Davy Crockett. And there aren't many like this in American history. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. continue with the story of Davy Crockett and let's pick up where we last left off with the arrival of Davy and his fellow soldiers at the Alamo on February 8, 1836. Y'all halt right there and state your business. We're volunteers from the United States here to fight for the Republic of Texas. Open the gates up. William Travis who is in command of the Texas regulars gets word of an advancing Mexican army. Santana advances north. Here's Crockett from his autobiography. Take note. When this war is won and Texas has achieved her independence, these people are going to need a strong leader. And I intend to give them what they need. On February 22nd, the San Antonians celebrate George Washington's birthday, dancing and eating tamales and enchiladas. What Crockett and those stationed inside the walls of the Alamo, including numerous women and children, don't know is that an enraged Santa Ana and his army of nearly 2,000 soldiers will arrive the following day and surround the Alamo. If you're going to teach these Texans a lesson, you need to teach them that lesson at the Alamo. So the first thing he does is try to scare them. Raises a black flag of no quarter. The black flag means? None of you will be spared. And he sets his guns up in strategic position to begin bombarding the Alamo. Several different times during the siege, the sharp shooting of Crockett and his Tennesseans are instrumental 
and driving back the Mexicans. Crockett is living up to his reputation. What people need to understand about the Battle of the Alamo is that it is a siege. And this battle lasted 13 days. After one of the battles, William Travis writes, The Honorable David Crockett was seen at all points animating the men to do their duty. Colonel William Travis, 1836. March 5th, 1836. Starving, sleep-deprived, and outnumbered more than 10 to 1, Davy Crockett and some 190 Texians refused to surrender and prepared a fight to the death. Here's the author of Lone Survivor, retired U.S. Navy SEAL, Marcus Luttrell. Man, there's a thing that happens when death's at the door. Most people don't know when the Reaper's going to show up, right? You just kind of, hopefully you, you die in peace or you die quickly. When you see the Reaper standing outside the door and you know he's coming in here for us, your world just kind of lends perspective in that moment. What was important, what's not important, who I wish I would have talked to. Man, it's a hell of a thing to, to go through that. Musket. Musket. Santa Ana is relentless, accepting heavy losses to breach the fortress. On the morning of March 6, he launches a massive assault. So he was willing to send a political message both to the United States and to the people of Mexico using the blood of his men as the ink for this missive. According to Susanna Dickinson, who was there throughout the siege and is one of the non-combatants crowded into the Alamos chapel, Crockett steps into the chapel and says a prayer before joining his Tennesseans defending the South Wall. Crockett and all the Tennessee boys fire their rifles until out of ammunition and then use those rifles as clubs. Here's retired U.S. Army General David Petraeus. Davy Crockett did what many American patriots have done, and that is decide to stay and fight for a cause in the face of an attacking enemy. And it speaks volumes about him uh, and about his character. After 90 minutes of furious fighting, it's over. The Mexican army takes the Alamo. All of the fort's defenders are killed. As we passed through the enclosed ground in front of the church, I saw heaps of dead and dying. 182 Texans and 1,600 Mexicans were killed. I recognized Colonel Crockett lying dead and mutilated between the church and the two-story barrack building, and even remember seeing his peculiar cap lying by his side. Susanna Dickerson, Alamo Survival, 1836. There are approximately 25 different accounts of how Crockett died at the Alamo. There's no way to know, because there are no credible witnesses to it. All I can tell you is Crockett became a Texas icon by dying here. He was actually only in Texas two months before he met his death at the Alamo. From the smoking ruins of the Alamo, the nation will soon learn that Davy Crockett gave his life defending Texas in the American dream. General Sam Houston calls on Texans to avenge Crockett's death and Remember the Alamo, 
becomes their rallying cry. Hundreds of angry Texans are drawn to the cause of independence. In a little over a month, on April 21, 1836, Sam Houston and his troops defeat Mexican forces and capture Santa Ana, gaining their independence. Nine years later, Texas will become the 28th U.S. state. Davy Crockett may well have perished at the Alamo, but the Crockett of legend has just begun. The Crockett legend easily transfers from stage to motion pictures, where he is always featured as the hero and always in a coonskin cap. On the night of December 15, 1954, America's first ever television miniseries begins airing on Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. 40 million people, almost one-fourth of all American television sets, glow with a black-and-white image of a young Texan named Fess Parker, starring as Davy Crockett on ABC. And now, Walt Disney. It's characteristic of American folklore that most of our favorite legends and fables are based on the lives of real men, like Davy Crockett of Tennessee. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. And the show's theme song, A Ballad of Davy Crockett, becomes number one on the music charts for months. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Walt Disney creates a new series called Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. It's positioned perfectly because America is still in the post-war era. Uh, it believes strongly in patriotism. And along comes Davy Crockett, another effort to re rekindle the light of the hero that people have forgotten for many, so many years. And it's with this timing that Crockett emerges again as a monumental hero in America's past. And he does it in such a way that he captures the imagination of a whole television crowd that remembers him as, as coonskin caps and uh, a host of other kitsch in pop culture. In America, the Crockett craze certainly took off with the first episode. Well, everyone was really taken aback and unaware. Uh, they didn't have any marketing ready like they would today. It was just something that had to be developed after the fact. But quite soon we had little boys and girls running around in coonskin caps and full buckskins, uh, rifle trying to hunt bear just like Davy Crockett did, trying to talk like Fess Parker did. But others made do with imagination and a good stick. And they played out the Battle of the Alamo in backyards all across America. Of course, more often than not, Davy Crockett won his last battle because historical fact was pretty irrelevant to toddlers in America. Davy Crockett has had a remarkable afterlife, growing to proportions that no one at the time of his death could have ever imagined. New Crockett's have been created, meeting the needs of new generations of Americans. And I think it's safe to say that Davy Crockett will always live in the American heart. At least so long as Americans cherish decency and freedom. Well, 
And great job on that, Greg. And thanks to Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. We're lucky to have him. We're honored to have him. What a professor he was for so many years out on the West Coast. Any students lucky enough to have studied under him, and Greg Hengler did, well, they'll be happy to hear his voice on our national show telling stories about this country. Cal State, Northridge, UCLA, Pepperdine. That's where Dr. Roger McGrath taught. And again, we've all had those teachers who brought history to life. And they're a blessing. And we need more of them now than ever here in this great country. This is Lee Habib, Davy Crockett's story, the story of the American frontier, here on Our American Stories. Fought single-handed through the Injun War Till the creeks was whipped and peace was in store And while he was handling this risky chore Made himself a legend forevermore Davy, Davy Crockett, the man who don't know fear He went off to Congress and served a spell, fixing up the government and laws as well. Took over Washington, so I heard tell, and patched up the crack in the Liberty Bell. Davy, Davy Crockett, seeing his duty clear. When he come home, his politicking was done. Why, the Western March had just begun. So he packed his gear and his trusty gun and lit out a grinning to follow.